You are listening to You Are a Lawyer. I'm Kyla Denagno, a 2015 law school graduate. This episode is brought to you by me. <laughs> Seriously, I'm selling merchandise at shopyouarealawyer.com. That's where you can find water bottles, long and short sleeve t-shirts, and everything you need to support the You Are a Lawyer podcast. So support your favorite lawyer's favorite podcaster and visit shopyouarelawyer.com to grab some merchandise. In episode 62, I'm speaking with a business consultant and lawyer. This guest helps lawyers create sustainable businesses through legal incubators. Based in Denver, Colorado, today's guest is Anne-Marie Rabaga. Welcome to the podcast, Anne-Marie. Hi, Kyla. Thanks for having me. Oh, of course, of course. Would you tell the audience a little bit about yourself? Absolutely. So my name is Anne-Marie Rabago. I am the founder and principal of Modern Juris, which provides tools, training, and support to help lawyers and legal professionals to build sustainable businesses serving the latent legal market. Okay. And what is a sustainable business? <laughs> so a sustainable business is one that helps to support you in your lifestyle and supports your family. And when you're in business for yourself, also to fund the overhead for that business. So my background before Modern Juris um, was that for the last several years, I have directed two different legal incubator programs. And we, I would say, as a movement, started using the term sustainable business versus successful business, because when it comes to success, I think that that is a term that is so individual and personally identified that it can be really amorphous and can mean so many different things to different people. Whereas sustainable means I am working and I'm able to cover the cost of my business and I'm able to cover the cost of you know, my minimalist lifestyle, often as an entrepreneur initially. And then as you and your business grow, you can, you know, work further into thriving and, you know, really prospering as a business owner. But sustainable <laughs> is just something that will sustain your lifestyle, sustain exactly. you through your business. Okay. So you went to Southwestern Law School and you're in Denver right now, but where, where are you from and where did you go to undergrad? Oh, good. So I am a Air Force brat. Okay. And um, I actually was born in Dayton, Ohio, which what? yes, near 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 where you are yeah, right now. Like 40 minutes up the road. Yep. I um I grew up mostly though on the East Coast outside of Washington, DC in Maryland. Okay. I my parents met and went to Ohio University. Okay. And they dragged me to Athens, Ohio for homecomings from a very young age. And I fell in love with that campus. It's a, it started in 1804, beautiful historic uh, campus. Yeah. And so I went there for undergrad. Um, and honestly, from that point, <laughs> it can make your head spin. Um, I, after undergrad, I went back to the DC area. I moved to Texas from Texas to Dallas, Texas, from Dallas, Texas, I moved to San Diego. I moved back to Dallas, Texas, I went to Chicago for a year to get my LLM. I came back to Dallas, Texas. We moved to back to San Diego because we loved it there. Um, and that's where I opened my practice and uh, ran that. And then 
And then when I, after I left practice, I went to work for the law school, running the incubator there in San Diego. And that's when Texas uh, State Bar decided to start their program. So I moved to Austin, was there the last five years and partly pandemic related probably. And my desire to do this under my own umbrella instead of inside of the confines of a sponsoring organization, I'll just say meant that we could be wherever we wanted to be. And my husband also works remotely. So my brother had a baby and he and his wife live here in Denver. So a brand new niece. And we decided to come here for the change of scenery yeah. Uh, because the natural surroundings are beautiful and to be close to some family that was here and because we could be where we wanted to be. So for now, we want to be in Denver and uh, that's home. Uh, look, you can only speak for right now. Who knows next <laughs> month? <laughs> the beauty is my husband is also a an Air Force brat. And so we both grew up moving around a bit and we're very comfortable being sort of vagabonds, if you will. So we, we live a minimalist lifestyle and we like to be able to, we, we actually kind of brag there's, we have one piece of furniture. We cannot, we, the both of us are needed to move, but otherwise we can, both of us could carry any one piece of furniture or anything that we own. And we like to not collect things to okay. keep it minimal and and to keep ourselves on our toes so we can pick up and go wherever the winds might send us. No, that's pretty cool. And I forgot about Texas. I'm glad you mentioned that. Because you're <laughs> licensed in Texas and California, correct? I am, yes. Okay. All right, very cool. And you said it really quickly, but legal incubators are huge. I mean, they're they're so groundbreaking. The fact that you can literally get right in the middle of what it's like to either run a business or in your case, with the Texas Opportunity and Justice Incubator, what it's like to be advocating for people. Would you share a little bit about that experience? Goodness, where to even start? The legal incubator world really was born out of the last recession. Well, I graduated from law school in 07, and I graduated from my LLM program in 08. And that was really when we started seeing the churning of the recession beginning. And as, you know, future classes of law school students graduated, they were coming out into an economy where there really weren't any law jobs, right? Mm -hmm. And so what happened was if, if you sat for a bar exam and you got licensed to be an attorney, you really had to start your own practice if you wanted to use that law license because the law firms and, and people that, you know, companies were just not hiring lawyers. Yeah. And at that time, law schools really were the on the forefront of launching these legal incubators. I, I think I appreciate the fact that they saw that as a educational institution, they were not preparing their students to go out into the world and start their own law firms. In law school, we really learn very little about the realities of practicing law. Mostly, certainly I went to law school in California. Most of my coursework had to do with learning all of the subjects that I needed to ideally be successful on taking the bar exam. Yeah. So an incubator gives you the practical skills of business ownership, business development, and also really serving clients. Mm -hmm. And so I initially worked for a law school-based legal incubator program. And then when the State Bar of Texas decided it was going to launch an incubator program, I moved to Austin to spearhead that program and to get it up and running. Okay. Yeah, I saw that, that you launched and scaled the program 
which is a huge task. <laughs> Launching is one hurdle. Scaling is a completely other. But I like that you said that it grew pretty much on its own. You know, once you got it there and people saw the value of it, they pretty much jumped on it. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think it's been an interesting evolution. So I've been in legal incubator movement since 2015. And even what I do now is very aligned with legal incubators. My personal company, my new venture is is a private sponsored incubator, if you will, whereas many of the programs across the country um, and in other countries are generally sponsored by nonprofit entities, law schools, law libraries, bar associations, be it a state bar or a local bar, courts will get involved, and sometimes even law firms. But I saw that this was something that if I could open up on a national scale and make these tools and this training available to lawyers who maybe aren't qualified to be in any particular incubator because the law school ones generally you need to be an alum of that school and the bar sponsored programs you need to be a member of that bar association and so by you know opening it up and not being geographically or association limited I'm able to you know bring this service to a much larger um, swath of, of the legal population. Yeah certainly and I'm sure that they're still popular even now that the economy is a little bit better, or at least it was um, before you left those incubators. I think the opportunity for incubators to proliferate across the country is is still very, very strong because okay. the younger generations, if you will, I'm I'm an ex gener, but the millennials and the the group that's coming behind them, which are The the oldest of the Z generation Mm -hmm. is graduating from law school and becoming lawyers right now. But those generations are very purpose-driven and they holistically are interested in in having a quality of life that doesn't mesh well (laughs) with with much of of the practice of law. Mm -hmm. And also we see that, that they want to kind of they want to forge their own path and, and write their own rule book. And so being your own boss, starting your own business is probably one of the best ways that there is to be able to work with the clients you want to work with, practice the area of law you want to practice and, and really bring to, to your work life and your career, the things that you want versus having someone else that's setting all of that out yeah. for you. Yeah, absolutely. And I think an incubator is a good training for that, especially for people who want to be their own boss, because it's like, listen to us and we're going to mentor you and coach you through so that you can be your own boss successfully, right? Like anyone can hang their own shingle, but we want you to stay in business. (laughs) Yes. And that gets back to the sustainable part Mm -hmm. as well. Yes, exactly. Cool. And what was your LLM in? What was that? Goodness. So I I worked for 10 years before I went to law school and I I did a variety of things professionally before law. But as I came into law school, I thought I was going to be an employment and labor law attorney because I'd worked in HR. And then I spent my first summer working with employees in a clinic that did unemployment insurance appeals and wage and hour claims. And I realized that I did not want to work with employees. (laughs) 
<laughs> that uh, that one's relationship with their job, with their employer, is such an intimate relationship that there's a lot of emotion that comes along with employees that are seeking out legal assistance, right? Mm-hmm. And so after that summer, I was I was like, oh no, well, what am I going to do then, right? And I had pre-registered for all these employment labor law courses and I had to rework my whole schedule for my second year of law school. And there were very few courses that had open seats and one that did was federal income tax. And so it wasn't part of the plan I had originally mapped out for myself, but all all of my plans were kind of off the table at that point. And so I said, this is going to be a practical class. So I'll I'll sign up and take this. What the heck? And I fell in love with tax law, which is, I know, crazy thing to say. (laughs) Um, but if you're going to practice tax law for the most part, you go and get an LLM. Um, and it's one more year and intense tax courses and I loved it. So that's what I got my LLM in. Okay. So that's a really good segue because I have a question here about the fact that you created Robago business and tax law, APC, but you also have modern jurists. So you're running both of those right now? No. Okay. <laughs> so so us, yeah, yeah. a little bit about the, the business and tax law. Yes, I'd love to. So okay. out of my LLM program, I was recruited to work for PricewaterhouseCoopers as an international tax consultant. And I did that for about a year. And I loved that work. It was intellectually challenging. It was, it was fascinating, but at some point about a year in, I started kind of having these feelings that I wasn't fulfilled. And I started examining why that was. And I realized that at the end of the day, I had gone to law school because I wanted to help people Mm -hmm. and, you know, helping multinational corporations move intellectual property offshore so that they could lower their U.S. effective tax rates wasn't really helping anyone. At least I didn't have a clear line of sight to anyone that I was helping. And so I decided that I wanted to use my tax degree and my law degree to help individuals and small businesses to navigate the tax system. And really when I looked around there, the, the people who do that, the lawyers that do that are in solo practice or in small boutique as we use that term in law, practices. And so I realized that I was going to need to hang my own shingle if I wanted to do the kind of work that I wanted to do. Okay. And so I started Robigo Business and Tax Law in, in San Diego, California in 2009. And that was a journey. Um, <laughs> and, it, and my experience with that has informed my work with directing legal incubators and working with the lawyers that come into those programs because... I think that if I had had the option to be in a legal incubator, maybe I would still be a practicing lawyer, but I am not a practicing lawyer. Uh, when When I moved into the legal incubator movement, I closed down my practice um, and wound up all of all of that work and said goodbye. And um, I really haven't looked back. And there was there was a lot that I learned about the practice of law and about myself that I feel like helps me help other lawyers work through that process. Yeah. The experience that you've learned from owning your own business, from helping people and then working in the incubator, 
like that knowledge is always with you. Right. And I'm sure it comes across in examples and stories that you tell people. So. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I've definitely, you know, allowed clients to hire me that I never, ever should have allowed to hire me. All the red flags were going up and I didn't listen. Right. (laughs) This this is a a core lesson of, of owning your own practice is figuring out uh, which clients are, are best for you to serve and which ones are best for you to refer to someone else. My path, my journey was that I just got completely burnt out and it started to affect my mental health. And I started, you know, seeking therapy and coaching and realized that, which is not easy, but realized that despite the time and the energy and the blood and the sweat and the tears and the money that I had invested in going to law school and becoming a lawyer and starting my own business, that that there was not, there was not a path that I could get on. Yeah. from where I was to, to continue what I was doing and that I needed to stop and go in a different direction. Yeah. And so that's what I did. Okay. So with modern jurists, are you using a lot of what you've learned, like from income tax or from the LLM that you took and from running your own business as you're running modern jurists, or have you just hired people to kind of handle those other parts? Oh no. Modern jurist is, is me pretty okay. much a hundred percent. And my colleagues in the incubator world who direct incubators believe that I bring the background that I have with the tax and the finances and sort of all of the money aspects mm-hmm. is, is a unique perspective that I bring to what I do. And so I, I try to really educate the lawyers inside of modern jurists and back inside of the incubators that I worked with about the business owner hat that you wear when you have your own practice. And so I do that both from an educational standpoint, but also for my own business. (laughs) Um, And and Modern Jurist is the only business I'm running at this point. Lawyers are smart people, but that doesn't mean that we always do the right thing from the outset and get our ducks in a row ourselves. And so that's a part of, of the practice, if you will, not practice of law, but the practice of being a business owner um, that is, that I teach through Modern Jurists and that I brought yeah. to the lawyers and in incubator programs. Okay. And that was a really good point. Sometimes lawyers are too smart to even ask for help. Oh, <laughs> so yes. they might, yeah, they, oh, I went to law school. I can run a business and it's a different part of your brain. It's a different set of skills. And it's, you know, you're not inferior because you don't know that, right? A lot of the things are not things that we study in law school. So unless you're going to research it on your own, get connected with someone who can train you, right? Exactly. Or, or hire it out to your point earlier too. Yes. Outsourcing is, is a good way to go about doing everything properly if you're not inclined to try to figure out how mm-hmm. to do it. I had a, a colleague back in the day who said, you know, give me Give me a weekend and a book and I can learn anything. I can learn how to do anything. And I think a lot of lawyers believe that. And there's some truth to it. Most lawyers are lifetime learners. They seek out, uh, you know, information and try to educate themselves. But sometimes it's good to know what you don't know Mm -hmm. um, (laughs) and to and to ask for help. Um, and to to bring in those resources um, so that you're you're not all alone, which that was a piece of why I gave up my practice too is and why I, I believe in incubators and, and programs like modern jurists is that 
we tend to, uh, especially a solo, when we're in solo practice, we isolate. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think it was, there's a 2014 or 2016 study that found that, that the legal profession is the loneliest profession. And I, I see that, you know, there's aspects of how our profession is set up with attorney client privilege and confidentiality that we're not really supposed to talk to many people about what it is that we're doing. And then if you're a solo and you really true, you know, they call it a true solo, meaning you don't have other lawyers that work for you or possibly even the other staff that works for you, then you're, you're an island unless you go out and seek a community um, to be a part of. And that's a bit of what the incubators and modern jurists provide is, you know, a group of people that are in the same boat that you are in going through uh, the same <laughs> the same experiences, uh, positive wins, challenges every day. And you can you can talk to each other, maybe not about specifics of a client or a case, but you have a group of people that you can lean on. And if we don't seek that out, then we seem to often just get mired down further and further in that isolation and sort of that, those feelings of, of being alone and lonely. Yeah. I wonder if it's been even more isolating now with so many people working remotely and working from home. I could see that for sure. Yeah. For sure. You know, one of the things Kyla, that, that people don't realize, cause we don't talk about it in, mm-hmm. in law is that, I've tried, I've tried to get my hands on a, a true survey inventory of the profession because the bar associations track it. And so if somebody would compile that, they would truly have the number. But the studies that I have seen say that somewhere between 45 and 55% of lawyers end up being solo at one time or another. Hmm. And yet, right, that's not, no, no law school advertises that. Right. <laughs> Certainly when I went to law school, I was, I knew that I didn't want to go and work in big law because I'd worked for 10 years and already done, worked in jobs that were high stress, high burnout, soul sucking <laughs> opportunities. Yeah. Um, and so I didn't see big law for a big law firm as a, a great opportunity. I, I, don't know that I knew what, where I was going to end up, but I knew it wasn't that. And yet from the day you walk in the door, that seems to be the way that the, the schools are pushing you, if mm-hmm. you can, to, to end up in that law firm life. And that's the message, right? Yeah. You can go to law school, you can graduate. And I, I don't even remember, are, are the big firms paying first year associates $185,000 a year now? It's some ridiculously astronomical number that has nothing to do with the value that that associate will bring no. probably in the first three years that they're there. But it's, it's the way it's always been done. Yeah. For the 85 hours they're working a week. That's, probably that's true. Being underpaid because that's if true. you think about it, like oh, forty hours, yeah, that's great, but they're not using the money. <laughs> they're they don't have time to spend it. Mm-mm. So they don't have any time for anything in life, yeah. probably. Yeah, um, I left my. I, I call it big law. It definitely was a big law mentality, but it was more of a middle law. <laughs> but I left my big law office in March, twenty twenty one. And part of the reason I left is they were obsessed with working remotely. They were like, I don't have to shower. I don't have to commute. And they were dumping so much work on me and my department. And I was like, you guys, we've, we've got to either like 
grow, right? So I launched this paralegal training department and then we were supporting our seven offices. And I was like, these people are working 18 hours. <laughs> oh, but they used to. No, but they they would like go and get coffee at least. <laughs> it was more like 15 and a half. Now they're truly working 18 and we need to scale. And they were like, oh, you can handle it. And I was like, someone else will handle it. <laughs> no, I got to go because it was too much. It was, it was absolutely too much. But yes, but well, you're right, work from was- home brought that on for so many more hours than when we were in a workplace interacting with people. And yeah. So I was making notes as you were speaking and you have a note in your questionnaire where you said you went to law school to become an expert, to help people. And also because you wanted to attend graduate school, that was important to you. Mm-hmm. Is that part of where modern jurists came from? Your creation of that, you know, being seen as the expert and helping people? Oh, yes. I, I call myself an accidental lawyer because really and truly, I, I wanted to go back to school. My undergraduate degree is in interpersonal communication, which is a fancy way of saying speech communication. And I have a minor in theater. I almost had a, a double major. And I came out of undergrad wanting to do performing arts administration. Oh. And I was supposed to go right to graduate school. Um, I had a scholarship and was going to uh, American University for performing arts management And then I took an internship for that summer and they offered me a full-time job. And I thought, should I go and get this degree when I, this is the job I would want after the degree. So I took the job and and let the the education piece go, but education is a value in my family, my immediate family and my extended family. So college was not a question. Right. And graduate school was also almost an, an expectation but I, I was fortunate enough to graduate into two recessions, really, from undergrad. I graduated into a recession and, and also pretty much from law school. And so I got into work after undergrad, and then I just kept doing the next natural thing. Mm-hmm. And honestly, I think for a lot of lawyers that when they go straight through undergrad to law school and this thing, it's almost this conveyor belt that you just get on and you keep working to check the next box and to do mm-hmm. the next natural thing. So I'd been wanting to go back to school, but the time just hadn't been right. And I finally reached a point where I'm like, there's nothing else I want to do work-wise and, and I want to go back to school and that I just need to, to say now is the time. Yeah. And I did research. I was living in San Diego at the time and I found a PhD program for sociology at uh, the University of California, San Diego. And it was a six-year program and you got your master's degree along the way. So they, they said that you'd go for, you know, you could leave the program after two years with a master's degree. And that actually at that point, it was kind of like a, a phase gate where they would evaluate whether, whether you were fit to go on to get the PhD or, or you would just leave at that point with your master's. And so that was really appealing to me. And I uh, got the, started, started studying for the GRE again, because I actually, my previous scores had expired and I had the books and was starting to, to study up for the GRE and my significant other uh, at the time, who is now my husband came in one day while I was studying and he was like, so wait, so tell me more about this. Like, what, what is it you're doing? <laughs> and and I said, well, I'm, I'm going to, I found this great program, six years, PhD. And, and he's like, and, and why do you want a PhD in sociology? And I said, well, 
why not? I, I, right. Like, why not? And he's like, no, but really why? And I was like, well, I want to be an expert and I want to help people. And he didn't even skip a beat and was like, lawyers help people. Maybe you should go to law school. It can't be six years long. And honestly, like we didn't know how long law school was. And I was like, hmm, you're right. I haven't thought about that. So I I sat down, I did a really minimal amount of research and learned law school was only three years, but that's about the extent of what I figured out. And I went, literally took my physical book back to Barnes and Noble and exchanged the GRE book for an LSAT book and started studying for the LSAT and then sat for that, got into law school and went. And I think it was about a month or so before law school was scheduled to start. And I I was working right up until law school started uh, that I bought another book called Law School Confidential, which is a really decent read. And that was really the first time that I came to understand what I was in store for. Yeah. And I enjoyed law school, but I probably enjoyed it for the extracurricular activities like moot courts and trial team and the different law societies and the friendships that I made versus enjoying the Socratic method or so many things about the legal education and the way that it's structured that could be better and could better mold and form legal professionals. Yeah. I definitely read Law School Confidential and there's another book called Law School Labyrinth. And that one was really good because they talk about how a lot of people go and are there for years and have no idea what they're doing. (laughs) And I read both of the books. I still went to school and changed my major multiple times because the one thing I've learned from interviewing people on the podcast is that lawyers are naturally curious. Mm -hmm. And so at least for myself, where I used to think I was kind of like scattered, like, oh, wherever the wind blows, I'll go. But really, I'm just curious. Oh, I could be a librarian. I could get a PhD in sociology. I, right. Like I, I know I could, so why not? Mm -hmm. Um, And it's just kind of the natural curiosity that lawyers have. So it's true. And actually I'm reading this book. It's by Greg McKeown. It's called Essentialism. Hmm. And he talks about how you can do anything, but you can't do everything. Okay. And that is, I think the way a lot of lawyers approach life and approach their careers and the the mindset that they can do anything but because you can do anything doesn't mean that you should yeah right and and we don't there's not a place at least there wasn't in my legal uh in my legal education there wasn't any place where someone stopped me and said let's let's help you learn about you mm-hmm right? Let's help you dig deep into where does that desire to help people come from? And what does that look like? And and how can you, with your work in your career, move toward the actualization that you feel and you believe that you are helping people? Yeah. And I love, I recently attended a seminar with someone who was talking about purpose and that person uh, talked about how if you're someone who wants to help people, the highest and best way that you can help people is not necessarily in the day to day, you know, going to a clinic as a lawyer and providing advice and counsel to whomever shows up. 
that the the way that you can help is actually to to shift that mindset to solving the problems that are the root cause of the help that people need. And so that actually is more where modern jurist has come from, that I am wanting to try to help solve the things that ail the industry. And I, uh, on my website, I have a whole, a manifesto of what I believe, what we believe uh, in modern jurists. And it has to do with access to law, access to courts, access to lawyers. It has to do with training lawyers on how to practice law instead of what we learn in law school. It has to do with lawyers being civil to one another and to embracing collaboration over competition. It has to do with building self-awareness and and looking for career satisfaction instead of getting on that conveyor belt and checking the boxes and doing the next thing that is expected of us instead of looking at what we really want. And it has to do with serving what I call the latent legal market, which is the people who often earn too much money to qualify for pro bono and free legal services but they don't earn enough money that they can afford the traditional law firm model of give me a $5,000 retainer Mm -hmm. and my hourly rate is $300 an hour. And I have no idea how many hours it's going to be, but I'll bill you regularly and and we, we can keep in touch. And so through modern jurists and through working with lawyers to break down barriers to legal access, to look at for new models, new business models in law, and create systemic change and to try to solve this access to justice problem that we have in this country. And as I've learned because of my curiosity, it's actually an international problem all across the world. There is not ready access to justice and to law and to lawyers. And I believe in the democratization of law and that it shouldn't be something that just a few of us hold the keys to. It should be something that we all can feel like we live in a society where our justice needs are met. Yeah. I mean, it is a whole systemic thing. Can't afford one, wouldn't know where to look to even find one. Correct. Um, Or one of the things I love about being a lawyer is the fact that I do have a network of other people I could contact if I needed anything. You know, I don't use them every day, not even every month. But if I did need to find someone in Louisiana and California and Florida, wherever, I know people who would know someone. <laughs> Absolutely. That's, yeah, that's a, a big privilege. We think of it mostly as, as an affordability problem. Studies by sociologists has found that only about 17% of people will point to cost being the reason that they won't hire a lawyer. It more has to do with not knowing one, not knowing where to find one, not knowing what to expect, or not believing that a lawyer is going to make any difference to their situation. And I think that's a problem for the legal industry and the legal profession that we obviously haven't done a good job of helping consumers. And although small businesses don't often hire lawyers either, but we haven't helped them understand sort of the value proposition and why bringing us into a situation probably in the long run costs them less money than if they try to navigate it themselves or you know that, that we're not going to come in and create contention Um, But these are some of the things that we need to be talking about and dealing with more head on, I think. 
Yeah, that's actually a terrifying statistic because I like to think of lawyers as coming in when you don't have any other solution, right? You guys can't compromise and that's why you need to go to court and let someone tell you do this, do that. So to think that people would think that we wouldn't be able to help, that's actually pretty scary. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, we'll definitely have to change that. Um, <laughs> I'm, we're working, I'm working on it. But as you, <laughs> I think you said at one point, like just, you know, one, one bite at a time, just, mm-hmm. just little, little bit at a time. And yeah. it's, uh, it's small incremental changes that can have the, the greatest impact in the long run. Absolutely. So all of the talent and the receipts and your, you took all that knowledge and started your own thing. I love that. I love it. It's yeah. When I fell into the incubator movement, it was sort of this eye opening experience of, okay, for the first time ever, all the different things that I have done make sense from um, sale. I, I was in retail sales and management. I was in HR doing recruiting and then corporate training. I was, and then I did professional fundraising for two different regional theater companies. Uh, and, and then my law firm, starting my law firm and also being a tax and business lawyer was sort of just this perfect a conglomeration of, of talents and experiences and skills that one needs to run, to launch, <laughs> as we said earlier, um, and build an incubator from, you know, budgeting and recruiting the members to de- de- um, developing and delivering a lot of the, the curriculum and the course content um, to having an eye towards mission and vision and articulating that well so that people continue to support your stakeholders, continue to support your program. And it was like, wow. And, and what's awesome is, you know, no one in this day and age, the first incubator ever was in 2007. And then they pro- proliferated from there. There's about 75 of them that have been started across the US at this point. But, you know, no one ever grew up saying, I want to be an incubator director. But now that's a career. Yeah. <laughs> um, and and there are, there are, you don't have to be a lawyer to be an incubator director. Actually, there's a few that are run by people who are not lawyers. Um, but definitely going to law school will give you a leg up. And um, going to law school and business school, I think, would give you an even bigger leg up, uh, even though I didn't go to business school. Yeah. Um, it's, uh, it's, it's the perfect conglomeration. And then, yes, I think that I am... I am an entrepreneurial spirit, even though that is not a characteristic of my X generation. <laughs> um, I think that that as you know, the future generations come through their pro- their professional careers, I think that entrepreneurial spirit is is going to be there. There's a Deloitte study that I think was done in 2014, and I I did some research about all of all of this for a talk um, last year about incubators. Mm-hmm but a Deloitte study from 2014 about millennials. And it said that 76% of the survey of those that were surveyed said that, they, that eventually they want to be their own boss. Yeah. Well, I never considered being an entrepreneur and my husband is a serial entrepreneur. Um, you know, kind of like you, I mean, you casually said you've, you've had three businesses and that, that's him. He's always daydreaming and, and, innovating and wake up in the middle of the night and write down something. And I just never wanted to because I'm risk averse and I really liked getting a steady check. I I just like to know that it's just going to be there. It's nice and secure for me. It's whatever. But 
since running a business, because I definitely run this like a business, I apply for grants and I actually lost my job in December. So this is my full-time business now. And um, running a business is hard. <laughs> like it's not, I always saw being an entrepreneur is like, I would just lounge all day and think of ideas and write them down. But I'm like, okay, these are my expenses. How do I cover them next month? <laughs> right. And I try to not think about his income and him having his job. And I'm trying to like, if this was just me, right, how would you cover these things? And it kind of, it pushes me to do a little bit more to reach out to someone to sponsor the podcast. And I don't know if that was the part that scared me about running a business before, but now that I'm doing it, I, I am having fun, but I'm like, man, this is even harder than just being an employee. Oh, yes. It's a lot of work. But I didn't see anyone who was talking to all law school graduates, right? That's my whole thing. I talk to any law school graduate. That's just your one qualification. And I sat on this idea for a while and I was like, well, if no one else is going to do it, I have to, right? Because someone else might be looking for it. So now that I'm doing this, I could see myself doing more of this. If I see something else where there's a void and I'm like, I could feel that. Okay, I'll do it. There's such a need. Are you marketing the podcast to law school career services offices and like now? I am starting to, okay. um, I was, it was on my list to do, cause I wanted to go to places and speak. Um, but now I'm actually marketing it just to say, Hey, there's a resource and let me know what things you need. You know, if you want it to be a one pager or whatever, but what was that abbreviation? Did you say milk? NALP is the national association of legal placement. And so that's the sort of the trade association, if you will, of career service offices Okay, no, for, for law that. school. I think that national association of career placement will be good, especially because I'm not telling people don't take the bar and I'm not anti-bar exam. I'm just look at all the things you can do, barred or not barred. Um, exactly. So yeah, so that might, I'll definitely look into that. I, um, yeah. I, so I just have one last question for you. Is there anything that you would say to a law student or a young practicing lawyer about what they could do with their law degree and how to think outside of traditional jobs? Yes, absolutely. I think that the path that we are set upon is not the path that we have to take, that there is always an opportunity to pause and reflect and say, this isn't where I want to be. This isn't what I want to be doing. And to pivot, which is an overused term these days, but, but, but adjust that path and, and, you know, forge a new trail. And I encourage, oh, I so encourage law students and young lawyers to, to open their minds to the possibilities that are out there um, and not to feel stuck. And if they are feeling stuck to talk to people, talk to someone about it or talk to people about it, because uh, that will often give you the opportunity to, to step outside of the confines of, of your own mind and where you find yourself and to ideally find a way to be satisfied in your career and your, and the profession. And I think that a lot of lawyers that are, find themselves unwell and unhappy is because they feel trapped and we're never trapped. The possibilities are infinite. Absolutely. We're never trapped. Well, thank you so much, Anne-Marie. I appreciate it. Thank you, Kyla. It's been a pleasure. I appreciate it talking with you today. All right. Bye. Bye Bye-bye. 
Thank you for listening to You Are a Lawyer. If you enjoyed this episode, leave a rating, tell a friend about this podcast, and subscribe to the show so that you never miss a new episode. New episodes are released every other Thursday. Thanks again for listening. I hope you enjoyed the conversation. Bye.